Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm really excited today because I get to bring um, another message from the letters of John. So for those of you that are maybe visiting today or fairly new amongst us, we've been going through the letters written by the Apostle John towards the end of his life, towards the end of the first century AD, uh, an, an older apostle, a wise apostle, um, who just poured his heart out in, in these letters and said, look, this is what really matters in life. And that's why these letters are so precious to us. And in the, I brought a message about three weeks ago, um, and today I want to bring a second part to that. And the focus of both these messages is to talk about the world. So John talks about the world in these letters. In fact, he uses that word um, about 18 times uh, in, the, in these letters. So it's important. And in the last message, what we did was it just started with uh, 1 John 2. So if you just want to turn with me to that, I'm going to read that briefly to us. 1 John chapter 2, <clears throat> and starting at verse 15. I'm reading from the ESV today. It says, uh, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And if you just turn with me across to chapter 4, and we're going to go to verses 16 and 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because we are as he is in this world. I just wanted to pause there because that's one of the most powerful statements in the whole of the Word of God. So I just want you to hear this again. I'm going to read this to you. This is the truth of Scripture about you and me. We are as He is in this world. We are, not we will be, we are as He is right now in this world. And in the first uh, part, I really wanted to um, sort of unpack John's statement in chapter 2 about not loving the world, but we mustn't stop there because God isn't just saying don't love the world. And and we we got into last time, I'm going to recap in a moment what that means, but he's also saying in this, we are as he is in this world. And it's really important that we have these two things in tandem together. Last time we looked at this warning and we looked at what the world means What does John mean by the world? It's just a Greek word, uh, cosmos, that we know very well. And it can mean lots of things. But in this specific context, John is talking about the whole of human history since the fall, when mankind has been enslaved to sin and alienated from the life of God. And he's talking about this because at the beginning of this letter, he says Jesus has come and he is this life of God. And we've touched him and handled him. 
And he's brought that uncreated eternal life of God back to us. That which we lost, the Son has brought back to us so that we can have that life within us once again. And that's the wonderful truth that John brings us. We looked at this scripture in Ephesians 2 where Paul says that you've been saved and you're no longer following the course of this world. And he uses the word cosmos again for world, but he uses another word for course, which is aeon. And it means a particular era of humanity, a particular period of time where certain thoughts and trends are prevalent. It's not a set period of time, it's a trend. It can last a short period, it can last a long period of time. But Paul is saying throughout the whole of the cosmos, the humanity alienated from God, there are periods of time, and we live in one of those periods of time. And it's really important for us to understand the age that we're living in. The course is still the same. We're still heading in the same direction, all of unsaved humanity. But in each particular age, there are different trends, there are different thoughts, there are different beliefs. But what we have is eternal. We're not to be shaped by the age in which we live, but instead we are to shape the age in which we live by the thoughts of the kingdom and by God and his principles. And last time we talked about three elements that are in the world, which we've just read in in, uh, chapter 2 and verse 15. And going back to Genesis, we found that those three elements were right there in the Garden of Eden. In fact, they were what Eve saw when she looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were this, that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. And last time we looked at that and said, well, actually, when we read the creation narrative, we're told that there were lots of trees in the garden, and they were all good to look at, and they were all really nice to eat the fruit from. And that was good. But this tree had something different about it. And it's this third element. This was the problem, because it was desirable to make one wise. And last time I, I brought a little illustration using presence, and I, I just want to repeat that, because I know there's some people that maybe weren't here last time. Can I just pick on someone? I'm going to pick on my friend, Stephen. Can you come up, Steve? All you're going to have to do is hold some stuff and pass me some stuff. Is that all right? There you go. Fantastic. So, to try and demonstrate what happened in the garden, I want to use some presents. Okay? So, Steve is going to represent God. He's the giver of gifts. Everything we have comes from him. And I'm going to represent Adam and Eve. And when things started out, I was facing him. So, we're going to face each other. We had full fellowship. But then things went wrong because when Eve was tempted to take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that third element, desirable to make one wise, that's what came between us. So up until this point, God had been giving me gifts. Do you want to give me some gifts, God? Thank you. And every time God gave me a gift, he showed me what the gift was about because each gift that God gave me told me something about him. It revealed something of his nature to me. God's wonderful nature. Every gift had something different in it. And God said, I've made all these things. I'm going to give them to you so that you can understand who I am and who I've made you to be because we were made in his image. But then Satan came along and he said, yeah, but you see, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then all those decisions that God's making for you right now, you can make them for yourself. 
You can make your own decisions. In fact, you'll be like God if you eat from that tree because he makes his own decisions. He sets his own boundaries. He decides what's good and what's not good. But hey, you're made in his image. If you want to be like him, then surely you can make those decisions. So they took the fruit from that tree. And in taking the fruit from that tree, they did something which was to turn their back on the giver. To say, I don't need you anymore. I don't need you to show me what the gifts are for. And so from that point onwards, Adam and Eve still had the gifts. But when they looked at the gifts, God wasn't there to show them what the gifts were really about. So they started looking at the gifts and the object of their affection, instead of being the God that had created them, became the gifts that he'd given them. Created things and not uncreated creator. So people started looking at the gifts because Adam and Eve's children were just the same. And it started at just looking at the gifts and these being objects of affection. And then slowly these things became the source of everyone. These became the objects of worship. And these things only contained life. Only life in its limited created sense, which runs into decay without the life that he brings. And that was the problem. The wonderful thing is that Jesus came and turned us back around again. You see, for all of us, we were born facing this way. We were facing the opposite way to him. So I'm going to pass these back to God. Can you pass them to me over my shoulder? Or whichever way is easier. There you go. So I'm born, and I'm still experiencing good gifts from God. All the wonderful things in my life. Thank you. But I don't really know where they've come from. I don't understand who the giver is. And I don't really know the purpose of these gifts. And in fact, I'm looking at these things hoping that these are the things that give me life. They're good things. But without the giver, what's the point? So Jesus came and he turned us back around again so that we're facing the Father once again. And now these gifts suddenly start to make sense because there are things in the gifts. You see... Each of these things tells me something about him. And the wonderful thing is the Holy Spirit came to live inside me. The Holy Spirit came. And each time I came to look at a gift, from now on, the Holy Spirit was to say, you see this gift? This is what I want to show you about your Father in heaven. And so suddenly the gifts make sense again. Thank you, God. (laughs) Give Steve a clap. So what I'd like to do now is I want to go back to the book of Genesis and just read some of those scriptures. Because I've just told you what happened, but I want us to read what happened. It's really important whenever you're hearing from someone ministering in the word of God that you read the word of God for yourself so that you can see what we're saying. We must be good Bereans. The Bereans were the ones that heard Paul and then went away and searched the scriptures to see that that was what God had said. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. And verse 8, now this is right at the beginning and God has put uh, man and woman in the garden and he's starting to give instructions about how things were going to work. And in verse 8, God says, it says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every kind of tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you just go down with me to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I go down to chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafted than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate her. He ate it. (laughs) Then then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So Adam and Eve were together. This is not just about Eve. Adam and Eve were both there together when it happened. Satan comes and starts to question what God has said. The enemy will always start to question what God has said, which is why it's important to know what God has said. But even if you know what God has said, the next tactic of the enemy is always to question God's motives in what he has said. And he will get you to doubt God's motives and his intention towards you. And that's exactly what Satan did here. Eve knew what God had said. So then Satan tries a different tack and says, yeah, but this was God's motive in giving you the command. Now turn over page with me, if you will, to uh, chapter 3 still, but verse 22. So we're just skipping forward slightly, and in the interim verses, God has come, discovered what has happened, he pronounces the curse, he also announces that the seed of Christ will come and bring salvation. But then he says this, then the Lord God said, behold, verse 22, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when we put all this together, what we find is that in the garden, there were lots of trees. And we've just read in chapter 2 that all trees were good. All the trees were good and pleasant to eat, but only one of those trees they were prohibited from eating from. The reason why is because God knew when they took of that tree, it would be a decision to turn away from him and start making their own decisions, and that is the root of sin right there. It was desirable to make one wise. It makes me wise. I make my own decisions. And God knew that, and that's why he said no. But did you notice we had two trees in the garden that were named? Right back at the beginning there in chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. 
the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And last time I focused on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what that represented, but today I want us to look a little bit of what it means to eat of the tree of life. Because the good news, folks, is that we are called to eat of the tree of life. And in actual fact, the only tree that God said you can't eat from in the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means that Adam and Eve were able to eat from the tree of life. And it's easy to miss that in the narrative. You can think there were these two trees here that maybe they didn't go near. They're at the centre of the garden. And they ate from the other trees. But that's not what God said. God said you can eat from all the trees, but not that one. So that all includes the tree of life. And that was God's intention for Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life as well as all the other trees. Lots of theologians have pose the question, what was the tree of life? Some of this stuff is surrounded in a bit of mystery. In fact, the, the, the creation narrative is mysterious in of itself. There's elements that we don't understand, and sometimes people ask me questions about, well, you know, why was the tree of knowledge of good and evil put there in the first place? Um, was it an apple? Was it a pear that they ate? Uh, lots of questions that can distract us from the purpose of the narrative. Don't get bogged down in the detail of the narrative because there's something that's more important than that and that is what God is trying to show us. This is at the core of human nature and who we were made to be. Lots of theologians believe that the tree of life represented Christ when you put it all together, that actually the tree of life represents Christ because all of creation was made in the image of Christ and it was God's intention for Adam and Eve to grow into the maturity of Christ. That's God's plan A, and that's not changed. So when we find in the book of Ephesians, when Paul writes to the church, we find the same thing, that we together are to grow into the stature, the full measure of the stature of Christ. So it has always been God's intention when he created the whole of the universe, he created it through Christ, for Christ, in his image, And Paul says to the Colossians, Christ holds all things together. It was his intention that the pinnacle of that creation, which is man and woman, would represent Christ and would grow into the fullness of Christ. You see, they were born as adults, but they weren't mature. They were immature and they had to grow into maturity. So God's intention was that they would grow into the maturity of Christ and the tree of life represented that maturity of Christ. There's not many references in the rest of the Bible to the tree of life. If you work your way through, you'll find just a few peppered in the Proverbs. But we come back to it in the book of Revelation. When John again starts to talk about the future and he talks about the heavenly Jerusalem, he talks about Zion, the dwelling place of God and man. That's the body of Christ that we've come together in him. It talks about those who are faithful and have been washed in the robes of the Lamb, being those who are allowed to eat from the tree of life and live forever and it also talks about the heavenly Jerusalem the city of God that the place where his throne is where the river runs the river of life from his throne and it says on either side of this river is the tree of life you think well what does that look like I don't know but it it sounds to me like more than one tree like now the tree of life is a community not just Jesus but a community a head and a body multiple 
men and women who are made and have matured in the image of Christ. And I think the tree of life speaks of all of this. The contrast with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is both of them were good to look at and they were good for food. But Genesis doesn't tell us if there's a third element to the tree of life. And I've pondered this. And the only thing I can think of, and this is just my own little theory, by the way, is that there is a third element to the tree of life. And that is that the fruit of the tree of life reveals to us the nature of God. That actually through Christ we understand who the Father is. Through Christ we partake in the very nature of God. And in so doing we understand who we are. Because it's not just about understanding the giver. But through his gifts we understand who he's made us to be as well. And this brings us back to John. So let's go back to 1 John and chapter 4 verse 17. You see, I believe that in this, uh, just in this narrative here, that there are elements here that tell us what John is saying. So we've got this wonderful statement of John in verse 17. He says, for we are as he is in this world. What on earth does John mean? We are as he is in this world. It's a wonderful statement, but it somehow seems a little enigmatic. It seems a bit mysterious. Well, earlier in the book of John, he says, when we see him, we will be like him. And we know that we are being made into the image of Christ. We know that we're being, as Paul says, transformed from one degree of glory to another as our characters become shaped to be like Christ. You're still you, but now you're a Christ-like version of you and the you that you were always intended to be. And that's the process of discipleship in our lives. It's the process of what the Bible calls sanctification in our lives. But I believe in the uh, context here, we have some clues as to what John means. And I think one of the clues we have here is in verse 14. It says this, And we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Jesus was sent. And I've got some, these gifts that we looked at a bit earlier... I've got two gifts here that I believe tell me something. Of the gifts that God has given us and what they say about who we are. Each of these gifts I've got represents something of who Christ is. So I'm going to open the gifts. And the first one I'm going to open is actually addressed to the world. So this gift is meant for the world. And if I go into the gift, this is the first present I've opened this year, by the way. And there's an envelope in the gift. It's addressed to the world. Shall I have a look and see what's in the envelope? Okay. It's addressed to the world, but we'll have a look. You know why? Because this says, beloved child of God. That's you. This is addressed to the world, and you're in it. You see, Jesus was sent into the world. When you read in John chapter 17, 
what's described as the great high priestly prayer. It's the longest conversation we have between God and the Father, uh, between Jesus and the Father. And Jesus talks about his disciples. He talks about God keeping them safe. But he talks about sending them into the world. And he says, as you have sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. And actually, Jesus, by his very nature, is sent. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says this, is that the Son is the image of the Father, that he is the radiance of his glory. If you can imagine the Son as the Father and the light that emanates from the Son being the Son of God, the Son is naturally sent out from the Father to show all of creation who the Father is. We know the Father through the Son. Paul says to the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He's how we understand who God is. So Jesus is sent out from the Father to show the world who the Father is. And because we are made in the image of Christ, we are sent out from the Father to show the world who Jesus is. Jesus has sent us for that purpose. You know, being sent is in our very DNA. Because Christ is sent by the Father and Christ is sending us into the world. This church was sent from another church. It was a plant. We were sent out. And God has spoken to this church and says, you will be those who, like Antioch, will send others. But when we hear that message... I wonder how we receive that. Because God has spoken that to us many times to say, you're going to be a place that will send others out. And sometimes I think we hear that and we say, others will be sent, but not me. And I think we need to ask ourselves, are we prepared to be sent? And what does that look like for me? Does it mean I'm going to go to a different place? Because scent can mean lots of different things. Just recently, we watched, um, Ellie and I watched this uh, documentary on the Voyager spacecraft. Anyone heard of the Voyager spacecraft? Okay, maybe three people in the room, so good. The Voyager spacecraft was sent from NASA in 1977. It was a five-year mission. Two spacecraft were sent out to hopefully um, take photographs of some of the planets. The spacecraft were designed to last, they looked like sort of satellites, you know, with a dish and lots of scientific equipment, to take measurements, to take pictures, to send them back to Earth. And they hoped that they would get five years out of this. And the way that they travelled was to be sent to one uh, of the planets and to use its gravitational pull to slingshot and go on to the next planet and so on and so forth. Very clever. Those spacecraft are still going now. So they, I, when they were sent, uh, that would have been 1977, I was four years old. They were designed to run out when I was nine years old. I'm 46 years old now, and they are still going, those spacecraft. And the interesting thing is, is that they exceeded their mission parameters. They took all the photos, and they went on to more planets, the outer planets, that scientists didn't kind of hope for at the beginning. 
these things just kept going. And eventually they went beyond the outer planets, out into the darkness of space. But these spacecraft were sent, and they were sent with a message. So lots of um, uh, scientists and mathematicians and all sorts of clever people were employed to boil down as much as they could of human knowledge and history and to put that into a format that we were capable of doing in 1977 on that spacecraft so that whoever found that spacecraft eventually would know we are here and what we're about. Things like images were sent, but there was a limit of about 120 photos that could be sent back then because of the space that they took up. So someone had to decide on 120 photos to sum up a visual representation of life on Earth. It's amazing, isn't it? And there are two things that struck me as interesting about these spacecraft. Number one is that they're in different places right now because they've gone slightly different trajectories, but scientists have put a, a, a piece of kit on there that can measure solar radiation. And what they wanted to do was, if they went beyond the planets which they have, that at some point they would reach the edge of maybe what we call our solar system. But before that point, they would reach the edge of a bubble. And that bubble they called the heliosphere. I'm not losing you so far. You still with me? If I can understand this, you can, I promise you. The heliosphere is the influence of the sun. The sun is throwing out solar winds and other stuff that I don't really understand. But it's throwing stuff out, and scientists say there's a bubble, and the purpose of that bubble is it protects everything in the solar system from stuff that's in outer space, from coming into the solar system. And that's going outward. And these spacecraft have just left that bubble. The first one left in 2012, and the second one left a year ago in November 2018. But those spacecraft have traveled so far, and they're carrying a message. And it just struck me as this. We're like those spacecraft in that we are sent. That is part of our very nature. That's our mission, and it's why we're here, is to be sent into the world. But unlike those spacecraft, we're not going to get to the edge of a heliosphere, a sphere of influence, and push beyond it. Because as we go, we are extending that heliosphere, that bubble of kingdom rule. As we go, we take it with us. And if I go back to the priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus was saying to the Father, protect them, Father, because he knew that he had to wait until the day of Pentecost when they would be filled with the Spirit. And from that day, the world would be more endangered by them than they would be by the world. In other words, that with the Spirit in them, they could change the world and turn it upside down. And that's exactly what happened is that the apostles were sent out. Some were martyred, some were crucified, but some went to the furthest known regions and turned the world upside down. And folks, we are no different to that. We are sent to extend the kingdom heliosphere. It will never end because of the increase of his government. There will be no end. And it's who we are. We are sent. And here's the second thing I noticed, is that Everything that's on those spacecraft, if someone picks them up one day, and I'm not theorizing if there's life out there, but if someone picked them up now and looked at that, they would have a snapshot of life in 1977. Do you think life has changed since 1977? Yeah. Quite a bit. And the sum of our knowledge has changed. 
So they just have what we were in 1977. But you and I have been sent out, and we have a snapshot to show the world of who Jesus is. But that snapshot changes every day because we are becoming more and more like him. So the further that we go out, and every single day, we have an image of Christ that is changing and being updated. It's not out of date. But the challenge to us is this. Is the image of Christ in me changing every day? Am I becoming more like him? Or do I much as, look as much like him today as I did a year ago or as I did five years ago? Because it's easy just to stand still. Folks, we are sent like Christ. We are as he is in this world. He's still sent. That's part of his very nature, to reflect the Father and to be sent. And it's part of our nature. And I really believe that God wants everyone in this house to have a revelation of what it means to be sent. That it's so part of our fabric and identity that every day we wake up, the first question that pops into our head is, where are you sending me today, Lord? He might be sending you to the same place with a different purpose, but he's sending us every single day. Shall I open the second present? Okay, here we go. So this is another aspect of Christ that I believe we are to display and which I think these gifts are to show us. Here we go. It's a cross. What does this represent? When I look at this, I feel loved. Above all things, that he came for me. I wasn't worth it. I was not worth coming for, but he came anyway, because he loves me. And you know, in this narrative of John's, he talks about the love of God. He talks about God's love being perfected in us. You know, when I read Jesus' life, all I see, above all things, is a son who knew he was loved by his father. Everywhere he went, he knew he was loved by his father. And I believe we're the same, that at the core of our being, we are loved. If there's nothing else that you learn in your daily walk with him, learn that you're loved. Not because someone told you and you just agreed that that must be true, but because you feel it in your heart. Because it will transform everything in your life. Jesus functioned every day from that security and peace that came from knowing he was loved by the Father. Everything he did, he didn't do out of duty, but he did out of love. But not because he must, because he wanted to please the Father. Jesus never did anything out of duty. We often talk about being servants of God. And we are servants of God. But you know why we're servants? It's because we're sons of God. We are sons who choose to serve. You see, a servant is entrusted with something, but they never really own it. And maybe they're a servant for a period of time. But a son 
is a son forever and one who inherits from the Father. And sonship and knowing that we are loved is the most important thing in your life. It will change everything, absolutely everything, your thoughts, your attitudes, your plans, knowing that you are loved. The way that you treat others in your life. It all begins with knowing that you are loved. Being delivered from all the hurt that you've suffered in the past and the terrible things that people have said to you. Knowing that you're loved by him and that that matters above all things. You see, it's your, our identity are as loved children of God and that's what John wants to emphasise to us. We are loved as he is loved. We are loved. We are as he is in this world. We are loved. So that every day, that becomes core of your being. Every day you wake up and you say, Father, I am loved. There's nothing I can do to earn the love. There's nothing I can do to be unloved. I will always be loved. You see, the world is searching for that same thing, that identity, but it's always looking in the wrong place. In the world, you either have to be good enough to be loved, or you have to be loved but unwilling to change who you are. That's what you have to choose between. I need to change everything to be loved, or you will love me and accept everything about me, and nothing's got to change. And God says, neither of those things are right. I love you no matter what you've done and who you are, but I'm not going to leave you that way. I'm going to change you. And I'm going to change you to make you the way you were made to be. Who I made you to be. Because you'll be happier knowing who you are and who I've made you to be than anywhere else. And that's why I've got a third present here. And the problem in the world is they've got some of the same gifts that we have. But there's nothing. There's just emptiness there. If you don't know you're loved, you don't know the purpose of life. If you don't know him, you don't know the purpose of life. But we do know God, and we know his purpose. John says in this passage, God is love. If God is love, for me, this is almost, John saying, the most important attribute of God is that he is love. Now, I know John isn't saying that. But God is saying, but John is saying that God is love. And if God is love, the most important aspect of who we were made to be is objects of that love. And more than that, conduits of that love. You see, that love can't stay in you. It has to flow out of you. That love is always on the move because that love is the love of Christ and Christ is sent so being sent and being loved go hand in hand together. You can't stay loved and stay where you are. Because that love will compel you and send you into the world that you were designed to be sent into. It's the only reason we're here, folks, is to be sent into the world. We're not here to sit here and just enjoy being loved. We're to enjoy being loved out in the world and to be a display of his glory. So we started in the first part with John chapter 2 and verse 15 with John saying, 
love not the world. If that's our sole focus, that we mustn't love the world, then our attitude becomes one of retreat. We will remember John 17 as Jesus saying, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. Now that's true. But that's not all Jesus said when he was praying. He said, you're not, they are not of the world, but I am sending them into the world. And that's why we need to know this second part, 1 John 4, 17, we are as he is in the world. It would be better to remember John 17 as those who are not of the world, but sent into the world. We're not to be of the world, but we are to be sent into the world. Christians only have two modes. Do you know that? We've got two modes of life. The first one is that we're sent, and the second is that we're called home. That's it. There's no other state. There's no waiting. There's no, I've done all of my things, and now I'm going to hang up my boots and wait. That doesn't exist for Christians. You're sent, or you're called home. And that applies to everybody in this house. We are sent. I know for some people that can be quite scary. Because we think, okay, now I've got pictures in my head of being sent to doorsteps, knocking doors, or maybe, I don't know, to the centre of town and preacher's corner. I don't know what images get conjured up in your head when you think about being sent. But I just think we need to uncomplicate all of that. Because every day, God sends you somewhere. Sends you to different places. And I just want to encourage you to go back to God on your own and say, Lord, I want you to show me that I am sent just as Jesus was sent. So as you sent him, he has sent me. And Lord, I want to feel sent everywhere I go. You see, to be sent is to carry something of the sender. It's to be sent with the authority of the sender. It's to be sent to represent the sender. Sometimes it's to be sent to bring gifts from the sender. And we're called to do all of those things. We're called to go out in the authority of Jesus, and there's no higher authority, and to use the name of Jesus in every situation we find ourselves. We're called to take the good gifts of God, to lay hands on the sick and pray for them to be well. And we're called to bring the love of God to people and embrace them. Do you know that the Father is embracing you right now? Right now. You say the Father is in heaven. Yes, he is. But the Spirit is here and he's inside you and God is embracing you all the time. You are never not embraced by the Father. Wherever you go, he's around you and surrounding you. And when we have a revelation of that every day, boy, do we feel loved. We feel cherished. We feel protected. And only when we feel like that, I think, will we have the confidence to be sent. Because we know we're not going on our own, but he is going with us. A people who know these things in our hearts will be just as unstoppable as Jesus was. Every day will be a new encounter. Every day will be a joy when you get to pour the love of God from your heart into the hearts of people you meet and to see lives transformed 
just the way that Jesus did. He wasn't sent to everybody. He was always sent to one person at a time. You notice that? The Holy Spirit said, that's the person now. I need you to go to that person now. I want you to go to this person next. And that's what we have to do, is be sent to one person at a time and just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and let God do the rest. Does that sound good? Father, I just want to thank you. Lord, I want to thank you that you came, you rescued us, you brought us home. But Lord, home is you living with us. It's not a faraway place, it's not heaven, it's not a waiting place, Lord. But home is you and us together in unison, Lord. Lord, you have sent us into this world to show the love of Christ. And Lord, I pray for each of us that every day we will have a fresh revelation that we are sent out with a message of the kingdom of God and that we are loved and cherished and that, Lord, that love and that peace and security in our hearts would speak to everyone we meet, Lord, of those that know a love that is unlike any love they have encountered before and a love that they too will want in their hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.